Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm one of the co-founders of Nori and the director of creative and marketing here. Nori is a carbon removal marketplace based in Seattle, Washington. Today I have with me Ed Begley Jr., an actor from so many things, including some personal favorites of mine like This is Spinal Tap, the Christopher Guest mockumentary, Six Feet Under, and Arrested Development. He is a longtime environmental activist as well as an author and recently published his memoir, the cheekily titled To the Temple of Tranquility and Step on It. Thanks for being here, Ed. Ross, thank you for having me. It's it's my great pleasure. I've been watching you since I really became interested in film and comedy, so this is a, a great little crossover for me. Your book was a great read. I had a lot of fun with it. It's littered with Hollywood hijinks, so much so that you refer to yourself as a sort of zealot or Forrest Gump figure of that time and place. The part that really knocked my socks off is about drinking with Tom Waits in the 70s. I wish there was almost more of that. I'm a big Tom Waits fan. That blew my mind that you even had that experience. But the book is not merely that, but also an attempt to operationalize a sort of radical honesty about your shortcomings and addictions, too. What role do you understand honesty is having for your personal healing? It's been essential, and that's our problem with climate change. We haven't been honest with ourselves. You know, it is very much an inconvenient truth, and that such was the case with my other addiction, like we're addicted to oil as a society, as a world, unfortunately. Uh, you know, I was addicted to drugs and alcohol, and and I, once you get real about that, you have a chance, a chance, I under emphasize and underline at recovery. So as we, those of us who became honest about it back years ago, when we first heard James Hansen talk about it, we were honest about pollution in LA and places like that. We cleaned up a lot of the smog. We've proven that we can do it, but we weren't honest about, you know, climate change as a whole uh, until finally there's beginning to be a critical mass of people who believe it's so that man is a major culprit and uh, we need to get more people to to own up to it, I'm afraid, because we're all part of it. We all did it. You have a beautiful story about one of your sponsors, you making a call in the airport and him saying that the mere fact that you called me means that you're not going to drink. Is there something equivalent like that for climate change? Is there what is the moment that might be that for us? I think the moment is seeing the connection because we tried we act like we're disconnected, you know, from the rainforest. We act like we're disconnected from the coral reefs but we're very much connected. Their fate is our fate. And so as we begin to see that it is, it is us, when I decide I'm going to hop in a plane instead of take my electric vehicle somewhere, you know, because I have to get there from Saturday night to Monday morning or whatever the time frame is from L.A. to New York, <clears throat> I don't like doing that. Once in a while I do it. We all have our shortcomings. But I try to fly almost never, as in quite rarely, and I'm fairly successful at it. But it's that honesty to realize that I'm still part of it. With all my ballyhoo about the environment, 
As recently as a few weeks ago, I had to get to event <clears throat> Chicago, and I was looking forward to driving my electric vehicle there and charging along the way, all electric, zero pollution, transport to Chicago and back, but I injured my right leg. I'm getting on in my years now, and I'm 74, and I couldn't drive more than about 50 miles without having to get up and walk around and get up and walk around every 50 miles, and that wasn't sustainable. So I had to get in a plane, and I hated it, but, you know, I, I acknowledge that I'm, I'm still, for all my successes, part of this problem of climate change that we all, all are part of. You're an example of someone that has taken this very seriously for a very long time. I had a question about how this might relate to your previous struggles with addiction. I watched clips from Living with Ed, your reality show about you tormenting your wife with your environmental zealotry, essentially. Um, do, do you see like a competitiveness or like a really strong desire to, to be environmentally conscious? And, and is, that, is that a replacement? Is that part of it? Am I reading too much into this as a sort of continuity? Now, I, you know, very early on saw my connection with the smog in L.A. Back in 1970 when I got started, <clears throat> I knew I was connected because I used to have, a, I was very proud to have a Mustang when I was 18 years old. You know, that's the kind of car an 18-year-old in the 1960s wanted and got sometimes, and I had one. You know, I had a Ford Econoline van. I drove my stepmother's Chevy Vega before that, so I had all these gasoline cars, and I studied about internal combustion engines, and I thought internal combustion engines were just great. And then I finally woke up and saw the connection between me driving around my Mustang and the smog that we're all experiencing, me leaving the lights on without needing to, and the, the smog from the power plants, the pollution from the power plants. So I got real about it and started to do something. And here we are from 1970 to date, we have four times the cars in LA, millions more people, but a fraction of the smog. We've all done that. That's a big deal. LA is a big city. And so if we can do it there, we can do it elsewhere. And then after you have expert testimony in the 80s, 1987, James Hansen testified about climate change and told us the facts as he understood them. And they were quite credible, three paths, you know, low, medium, and, you know, high temperature change and all the consequences that came with it. And uh, sadly, he was quite accurate. And uh, We've done precious little at our own peril, and we got to get cracking, and I mean now, or the consequences are going to be dire. So it, we're not going to save everything. That's over. That's past. That's done. But we can still save a lot. We have to save what's left, and that is our responsibility starting right this second. And Greta gets it. She's one of the few people that really gets it. You know, she is completely de dedicated because she's not distracted as many of us are with, by other things. Her condition keeps her very focused on just one task, and that task is waking us all up. Even people like me who think they've solved it all and live in a lead platinum house, there's more that I can do, and I have to do more. Otherwise, I won't be able to live with that, that realization that you know, I, I could have done more and I didn't. And say what you will about Greta, it's hard to argue with someone who's willing to sail across the ocean multiple times to commute to the Western Hemisphere. I know. That's commitment. That's true commitment. What is it about you that drives this personal touch? Because it doesn't ha impact the climate on the PPM level, but seemingly you're, you're very, very driven for personal carbon output of yourself to be driven as low as possible. I've seen videos of your house and your gardens and, and how you think about solar. 
Um, why is it is it competitive? Is there a game? Is there a creativity to it? What what drives that beyond just the politics of it? You know, I thought in my ignorance for a while, I just thought if I could just live this way and show that it's not only possible, but it's comfortable and you could save money doing it, then we'll have won this battle. Personal action was everything for me for a while. Me doing what I could and getting others to do the same. That's like a tripod with only one leg. A tripod by its very de definition has three legs to it. That's why it's stable. Not two, not one, but three. And the three are personal action, give it credit, it's important, which is also tied to the other leg, which is good legislation. The Clean Air Act is really how we ultimately clean up the air in LA. It wasn't me riding my bike or taking the bus. That was connected to it because good legislation, in this case, the Clean Air Act, enables us to have more clean power plants and more you know, clean buses and all that stuff. And the third one, connected as they all are, is corporate responsibility. Companies making the equipment for cleaner power plants, companies making cleaner buses, companies cleaning up the act in their you know, corporate headquarters and their warehouses and their manufacturing plants. Corporate responsibility, good legislation, and personal responsibility. Those are the three things, and they have to all be the same effort and the same strength and the same level of things are going to topple over. You can't have one really short, not doing enough personal action, not having the right legislation, not, uh, companies not really get involved or getting involved half-heartedly. Three robust, you know, legs of the same, uh, you know, length, and you can get something accomplished. That's what it takes. Nothing more, nothing less. The focus or even the equal focus upon the three legs and, and personal action has fallen out of favor with some, which I wish would come back a little bit more because your book and what I've seen of, of your life in your home and then also reading books like Peter Kalmus's book on this too, that there's actually a lot of joy that can come from living a low carbon life. It doesn't have to be of one of sacrifice. You, you get a lot of pleasure seemingly from optimizing all of your actions and having a circular economy within your own home. This isn't a sacrifice for you. Seemingly, it's something that actually is enhancing your quality of life. Well, I think there is a connection between personal action. It's not the main thing that we had wrong fears. I acknowledge that. But companies go, listen, we'd make electric cars, but nobody wants to buy them. Well, people went nuts for that EV1 when it came out, though you couldn't buy it, you could lease it. People have, you know, put forth a great demand for these kinds of products, and that's why they're happening. That's why finally you have to shame these companies and these legislators into doing the right thing. And personal action can influence that, like it or hate it. It can influence corporations and legislation to stand before them at the County Board of Supervisors, when they're about to site a new uh, landfill, as I talk about in the book, the Sunshine Canyon landfill, you know, I said, well, I only put out in a week, oh, about a glove compartment's worth of trash. I was just picking that out of my, out of the air, out of my ear, you know, that kind of amount of trash. I thought that's what it was. And they came knocking at my door, wanting to see a week's worth of trash. And I got it all together and it was a, less than a glove compartment. So it gave me some credibility. So they all are important, I think. And, uh, and you, you can't have one without the other. One influences the other. They're all very much connected. I think that's, that's certainly true. You were not, or you were one of the very first uh, electric car um, purchasers, leasers. I remember you, you have something in the, uh, there about buying uh, a kit car and building. Am I understanding the early days of electric cars seemingly though, something that you were quite involved with? The first electric car I had was in 1970. It wasn't so much electric car as electric cart with a T on the end. You know, it was like a golf cart with a windshield wiper and a horn. But I drove it around L.A. and it was very cheap to operate, very cheap to fuel, 
much cheaper than gasoline to fill up and uh, very cheap to maintain, didn't have any big maintenance cost to it. So I drove those for a while and then I had to go further in the range of the electric car and I got a super efficient internal combustion car for a while, then got them again, as you suggest, that kit car called a Bradley kit car. They made an internal combustion version, an electric version of a Bradley kit car. It had a Volkswagen chassis and wiring, wiring harness that was underneath. Then there's fiberglass body with gullwing doors and you could get it with an electric motor, the kit. I didn't put the kit together. Uh, I bought it from somebody who had and I drove that for a while and that was you know, the best I could get my hands on at the time. But finally when the EV1 came along and the major manufacturers were starting to make real electric cars with good braking systems, good chassis that could handle the weight of the batteries and all of that. They were much safer cars with the proper safety, you know, measures in them than, you know, these kind of kit cars that some of them were not really safe, I'll be honest with you. So, you know, we did that and that influenced people to go on to the next level. It's been said many times that the, the purchase of the Pentagon buying all those personal computers back in the 80s, then individuals also buying their compact, you know, and other brand personal computers really influenced them to get cheaper and more ubiquitous and what have you. And I think that's true. I think they're early adopters of any technology and they help push it to another level. Pretty soon everybody can afford a computer. And I, you know, I, so I think the people who got the GM EV1, albeit just as a lease, but showed the, an interest in it and a zeal for it and a love of it in the mid nineties, I think that's what led to nearly every manufacturer today having one or more electric cars to offer. It's been amazing to watch how they went from being yeah, sort of specialist hobbyist sorts of vehicles to all of a sudden now um, they're being uh, internal combustion engines are no longer going to be sold in certain states. seems like the world is moving over to electric cars, and that's a really powerful thing. Are there technologies like what it was for electric cars several decades ago that you're looking forward to now? Is there anything that you're excited for and, and hoping that you might be an early adopter of today? There's some new gadgets I have around the house that are kind of exciting, things that most people don't know yeah. about. I have something called Act On Demand in every uh, room in the house that has a sink, like a, the bathroom or the kitchen. Any of the bathrooms or the kitchen have something called an Act On Demand system. What that is, is a sensor, a motion detector up in the ceiling. So when you walk into a room, it turns on the pump, a circulating pump, which circulates the hot water to the and has it very close and hot and ready to use at the valve. You turn on the valve and you get hot water without waiting one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, 27 Mississippi, you're wasting all that water. People do lots of things to solve that. They shower with a bucket in there and then they got to get the, remember to get the bucket later and put it out in the garden. There's a lot of work in that, but something like that, that system called Act On Demand uh, works very well and uh, you know, there's been circulating pumps for hot water to have hot water quickly for many years, but they, first of all, use power. That's a cost environmentally and otherwise. And more importantly, they're circulating it on all the time. So they're basically cooling the water by circulating it through the, the cooler parts of the house, under the house or wherever. And you have to reheat it, reheat it, reheat it all the time. So it's using more energy on your, your water heater. So this system is solves all those problems. It's not on when you're gone. It's not on when you're asleep at night. No one's in the room. And there'll be more technology like that that's, 
a smart technology that nobody ever thought of. All of those appliances are deeply unsexy improvements that add up. If you think about air conditioning and heating versus heat pumps and how much energy that's predicted right. to uh, save over time. But no one is getting really excited about that relative to something like a new Tesla, et cetera. Except maybe nerds like us. Maybe we get excited about that. I have a heat pump and it's been amazing. Um, but a lot of those incremental improvements over time that sort of blend into the background, I think a lot of what climate change mitigation adaptation is going to take is going to be things like that. There's another one that I have in my house you might not have heard of. There's a thing. Uh, it's called Hot Sun. H2O Sun is the company. Mm -mm. And they put this black tubing on the back on the underside of your photovoltaic panels, basically glued to the back. And so then you can get extra hot water off the heat of the panels. And it's a twofer because what you want to do is get your panels cool, not hot. You know, you want the photons to hit them and to make electrons out of photons, but you don't want them getting hot. Solar panels lose efficiency when they get hot. Solar electric panels do. So if you can put some black tubing in the back then use that heat to heat water in your house or your pool, You've saved a lot of energy and you've done a wonderful kind of a twofer. Wow, that's pretty, pretty genius. And I've, in fact, I've seen that on houses before. I was on, on vacation recently somewhere hot and it, I saw that on the back of some solar panels and was wondering what that is. So I'm not surprised someone figured that out. It's pretty genius. Yeah. Um, I've also been very influenced by Alan Watts. I remember watching the, the videos that the South Park guys made that animated some of his lectures. I used to listen to hours of him lecturing in college. I've read several of his books. Uh, my favorite was the book on the taboo against knowing who you are. What do you think is there that people still come, keep coming back to? He was featured prominently in Her. Obviously, he has cultural resonance. Um, what part do you think Alan Watts could play for the environmental movement? I think he can help us a great deal because, you know, a very wise thing he either said or quoted one day, he certainly said the essence of this is, don't just do something, stand there. You know, and that's, I think those are wise words. People would argue that's totally contrary to what we need to do, Ed. We need to get moving. I mean, now we've got to save the environment. We've got the coral reefs dying. We've got the amphibians are dying. The, you know, the rainforests are being destroyed. And all that is true, but you can't. Don't try to do four jobs poorly. Do one job well. Get yourself centered first. Just stand there. Get centered. And then perhaps you can go out and do one job, one thing. You know, banning single-use plastic. Work on that and that alone. If you make, have some success with that, start working on public transportation in a city like L.A. Get that improved, blah, blah, blah. Just do one thing and do it well. And I'm talking to one person right now, and you probably figured out who it is, Ross. It's me. I need to learn that every day rather than do six things poorly, serve on too many boards and do six things ineffectively. Do one and do it well. And the way to do that is to get centered first. And the way to do that is listen to Alan Watts especially his wonderful book called This Is It, because this is it right now. Here it comes, Ross. That's all we got. That's really all there is, is that right there. And again, this right here, once again, it's happening again. If you just tune into it and allow it and realize this connection with you and sitting right here is as perfect a moment as I've had in my life. If you let it be, I don't have to try to get enlightened. I don't have to strive and travel somewhere to get enlightened, to get to the Temple of Tranquility and get there quickly. I don't have to do any of that because I'm already enlightened. I'm sitting here with you and we're both in a state of enlightenment, enlightenment if we open our mind and our heart and our soul to it. And we can, thanks to this very smart fellow named Alan Watts, somehow had great language to communicate to people like you and to me too.
this focus on mindfulness and and tranquility and and beauty and stillness is emphasized sometimes, but I think many people associate the climate movement with a lot more anger, with a lot more action. Do you think both have a place? What do you think the balance should be between the two? They definitely have a place because, you know, we can't all just be dolphins or koala bears or whatever cute little animals you want to pick. You know, no, dolphins are pretty tough. I shouldn't say that they're cute. They're cute and they're tough, you know, but some furry little creature. And the, it's not all that. You need sharks are essential. You need leopards. You need snow leopards. You need leopards of every stripe and dot and variety. Uh, there are some animals that orcas are quite, some would use the term vicious with the way they handle their prey. All those things are true, but you need the whole ecosystem. You can't all just be kumbaya about things. You need people who are out there and are vocal and are getting things done and aren't quite, let's say, as you know, sedate about it as I am a lot of the time. And I can be loud too. I can be vocal myself, but I'm having a certain amount of success these days with, with reaching people through stillness and with uh, an invitation to join me and more, you know, kind of laid back measures, if you will, that's been helpful, but we're not going to do it with just that. We need Greta out there upset, angry, dedicated, not going to take a flight no matter what. There's no compromises, no half measures. She does it all the way. So there's many creatures in the ecosystem and we need them all. Some of them look unattractive, but they all have a role. You have stories in there about um, being longtime friends and seemingly possibly neighbors with Arnold Schwarzenegger, too, and about reaching across the aisle and some of your work trying to find common ground. Do you think that's been successful for you in your life? I think that Gavin Newsom and Jerry Brown, since Arnold, have done wonderful things for the environment, possibly more. But by the time he became governor and during his term, he did a great, great deal for the environment. You know, I didn't always agree with him on some matters with the the nurses and what have you. I know he had some trouble with the nurses in California and the nurses union, and I didn't agree with him about that, maybe a couple of other things. But woman's right to choose, sensible gun control in the environment. He was an extraordinary governor. And for people to let their party interfere with working with somebody like that, you know, we do that at our, at our own peril, then we wind up with somebody like Trump. And uh, I don't think that helps anybody on any matter whatsoever. Yeah, and some of these areas where you have governors of a red governors of a blue state or vice versa, it seems like there is a tendency where people can find more common ground as opposed to communities that maybe agree a little bit too much. So I like to foster inside the environmental movement more disagreements too. I think there's sometimes a tendency to have everyone agree on everything, but I think active debate among well-meaning people can be really positive and, and make us smarter and better. I agree. I agree 100%. I'm grateful for my friends who are more vocal than me. And occasionally I join them and get a little loud myself. I know. I'm, I'm typically more of the convener, the middle ground finder, that person. The, I'm, I'm, less, I'm less likely to hold a picket sign and, and yell at people. But I think there's a role for, for that, too. And I think it's, I often have a better chance of reaching people who don't already agree with me than the people who are yelling. I feel like it's hard to persuade someone with a picket sign who potentially doesn't already agree with you. I don't know. Do, do you think that's true? Yeah, I'm... I'm good at doing things my way. I have a good success rate. I'm just not as built for confrontation as others are. Others are really built for it mentally, physically, in some cases, I think even. But it, it's 
my way, I've gotten a lot of people to follow and join in and help in a myriad of in a myriad ways <clears throat> by, you know, just uh, not yelling by speaking quietly. Gandhi certainly had a lot of success. Cesar Chavez had a lot of success by being uh, more quiet than loud and being nonviolent and accomplishing great things by fasting and other things of that nature. I didn't even mention that as part of your, your zealot like life, but also having a Cesar Chavez uh, intersection as well. Uh, I did want to bring up one of the zaniest environmental ideas I've ever heard of, which was almost without a doubt, it has to be Marlon Brando's electric eel idea. Uh, is there a future for that, actually? Will technology eventually catch up and, and prove him right? I don't think so, because the voltage is somewhat high, but the current is very, very low that they put out there. There's not a lot of amperage to it, and it only lasts a second. They don't even sustain it for count to three, I don't think. I think it's one misses. I don't even think it gets to be miss one Mississippi. So uh, I don't know that you could, by any means, harness that power but uh, I'd love to be proven wrong. Let's see, maybe there's a way to do it. Yeah, fill up pools with electric eels, find some way to harness that energy. It'll clean off the algae of your pool. No chlorine seems like a really simple fix, but unfortunately not. Not quite practical. Uh, it, quite possibly, yeah. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell people about your book um, to, help, to help convince them if they're not already convinced that they should read it, that they should come and pick up a copy? There's a... There's a rule by David Brower. David Brower was a great man who saved the Grand Canyon from being, you know, flooded and turned into a, a dam and a uh, power source. Uh, but he, he did not, uh, wasn't successful in stopping Glen Canyon Dam. But he had a rule, I think it was like Rule 7 or something. There was a number to it. David Brower's Rule 7 was don't take yourself too seriously. It's serious work we're doing. But you have to laugh, you have to enjoy yourself and have, you know, those moments of serenity in your life. It was very much tied to my thing about Alan Watson, don't just do something, stand there. Uh, David Brower had a rule, let's for the purpose of this discussion, call it Rule 8, and it was to enjoy yourself and laugh, and I think that's essential. That's what I've tried to do with this book, to find the joy and the laughter, try and effect a change and do very serious work that could have quite dire consequences but find some laughter and joy in your life while doing. I think that's so important. And so much of the show has quite a lot of humor in it. I think it's important. I think climate people tend to take themselves really seriously. The distinction you've made that the work is serious, but you yourself do not necessarily have to be at all times either. I think it's good for mental health and for people being able to sustain themselves in working on important issues. It's not being really serious or really angry, really insistent all the time it's probably going to make your life more difficult and not necessarily make you more successful at, successful at your ultimate goal here either. So I think one way you could do that both personally, but also your work has often featured quite a lot of comedy too, and has brought a lot of joy to people. And I, I'm sure that feels really meaningful to you. I don't know if it, how you rate it against your environmental and climate work, but surely making people laugh, the role of the clown, if you will, I think is one that's underrated. And I think is a really important role that people tend to overlook. I think laughter helps me carry on. It really does. Otherwise, I have a tendency to want to give up like everybody else. But if you can find some joy and laughter in it, I, I feel motivated to continue. Well, Ed, thank you so much for being here and making time. I really appreciate it. A link to the book is in the show notes. 
And um, oh, also, you have a line of products too that you sell. Oh, by the way, I didn't even mention that, but oh, yeah. I actually bought some wrinkle release from from you guys. Thank you so much. Yeah, so Ed Begley's Earth Responsible products are available at Costco and online, and they work very well. Very nice, non toxic products. So thank you for mentioning that, Ross. Very nice of you. Yeah, I had to stick that in there, and links are in the show notes. And thanks so much for listening. Hope you have a. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.